Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time to Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it is Friday, 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 uh, February 16th, 2024. Uh, I like to uh, start each show, as you know, with a little what's in the news headline. Uh, and uh, this one will have nothing. Well, kind of, maybe, sort of connected to the conversation I'm about to have with my distinguished guest. Uh, here's a headline in the New York Times. Sparks fly as DA in Georgia is grilled on her relationship. Now, I have two reactions to this. One is the political elitist uh, that I am, uh, which is scolding everybody for uh, allowing our attentions to be diverted by what is clearly a political ruse by the Trump forces to uh, create a non-existent conflict of interest in the case of uh, Afani Willis, who's a Fulton County uh, district attorney who's prosecuting Donald Trump for what is an obvious, an obvious violation of election law. He clearly, they got him on tape, ladies. They got him on tape, man. doesn't get more clear and obvious than that. Uh, telling election officials in Georgia, just find me the votes. And he had the precise number. I can't remember the exact number. Monroe knows it by heart when he comes on the show Wednesday. He always recites it. Uh, the, num- the, the precise number of votes he needs to throw away to give Georgia to him. Uh, and uh, so the counterattack is the, uh, uh, the Trump forces got a hold through a divorce proceeding, a long convoluted road of the accusations that uh, uh, Willis, Prosecutor Willis, had an affair with Nathan Wade, uh, who was one of her uh, attorneys that she hired to investigate Trump. I don't know how this is a conflict of interest, uh, as they're saying, because they're on the same side. <laughs> I mean, like, wh- who cares uh, <laughs> if they had an affair? But, you know, uh, that judge down there, he's bending over backwards to be fair to Trump. Everybody's bending over backwards to be fair to Trump. So they're having a hearing uh, and a uh, live uh, deposition, if you will, of Willis. Uh, and it was absolutely a, f- a fascinating uh, TV. 
if you're a political junkie. So this is the second part of my response. The first part is, uh, you know, I just, this is beneath us. This is just games, the games politicians play, uh, to paraphrase a great song from this uh, 60s. Uh, but the other part of me is I'm just such a junkie. And I'm just watching it unfold. And it reminds me of so many dramatic confrontations that took place earlier in my life on TV where, uh, you know, various uh, witnesses came up against aggressive questioning in televised hearings. I think of uh, the uh, Clarence Thomas hearings back in 1990. I think of the Iran-Contra hearings uh, in the 1980s. I think of the Watergate hearings in the 1970s. God, ladies and gentlemen, I've been around a long time. And these confrontations, and each side, like, stands behind its man. Like, we're so fired up. And, I'm, you know, and yeah, I found myself yesterday, yeah, Fonnie Wills, give him hell. <laughs> And like all the other anti-Trumpers on the internet are taking clips of great moments where she just st- stood her ground. And it's like, yeah, don't let them push you around. But meanwhile, they're talking sex. And when Americans, you start talking sex and that radar dee, 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 goes up. Man, talking sex is way more interesting uh, than talking politics for most Americans. Let's be Let's just be honest about this. So everybody acts like, oh, no, Ben, that's beneath where I am. I am not just concerned about sex. Oh, yeah. Then how come you only tune in when they talk about it? Uh, it was like that Jesse Jackson routine he did on Saturday Night Live where uh, like his, the radar would would beep whenever they switch topics to sex. Um so anyway, fascinating uh, show, Counter Punch by Fonnie Willis. Um, as the Trump forces tried to create uh, a con- an interest, uh, a case of conflict of interest where none exists, anything to avoid uh, their clients' uh, obvious attempt to subvert democracy. All right, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest uh, to introduce himself, uh, and we're going to have a conversation, but probably has nothing to do uh, directly with what I just said. So, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hello there. My name is Pamon Rami, and I am a member of the board of the Illinois Arts Council, and an author, a professor at Loyola University. I also teach uh, and instruct at the um, uh, University of Chicago, teach digital storytelling there, uh, international filmmaker, and a um, writer of curriculum. So those are some of the basic things. But I, I want to make one comment about what you said earlier. Go. You remember the Perry Mason show? When it was all in ages ago, of course you do. <laughs> I, every time I see things in the press now, it takes me back to Perry Mason. And you expect someone to jump up at the end after lying for the whole show and then say, I did it. I did it. You caught me. And I, I think part of our behavior is shaped by what we either envision from television or what we've been trained for it to be. And I know a lot of people have become lawyers because of those TV shows, you know. So uh, it's just tragic, I think, what all of this has become or, or gotten back to, depending on how you look at it. And, and the fact that you don't know who to trust in the media. Uh, we're inundated with with so many different choices of what you believe. Um, it's it's hard you know, to, to move forward. And then you get requests for, from political uh, people that are running 
all year long. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's as soon as the last election is over, they start begging again. And every day you get somebody talking about somebody to give you some money. So it, it's been fascinating to watch. And it's definitely reality television. Absolutely. So I don't know if you watch. I mean, again, we're, uh, I reached out to Pomoni's. This is his second appearance on the show. Uh, and uh, I said, hey, let's talk uh, Oscars. And the fans spent his lifetime. Uh, in movie making, uh, and uh, he's also from Chicago, born and raised. Uh, and so I just, I just, I, I would love to hear your perspective on the Academy Awards, sort of like the insider. So we'll get into that. But you're also a movie man. You spent your lifetime watching movies, working in movies, uh, talking about movies, lecturing about movies, writing about movies. Uh, so to your point, this is reality TV. That's that's what it was, and you're absolutely correct. Um, America has been trained to ex- uh, expect those Perry Mason moments, which probably 99.9% of the time do not exist. There's no right. one going to stand up and blurt out, I did it! <laughs> yeah, that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Uh, but there's a song, a country song. I don't know if you, you remember the song, Harbor Valley PTA. Mm-hmm. And, um, one of my favorite songs from the 60s, Pomone, where um, the singer castigates uh, her accusers that's saying they're all hypocrites because they're coming. She's a single mom uh, and she wears mini skirts. Uh, and she points out that all her accusers are all like, like perverted guys who are always trying to ask her for a date and stuff. And so she turns, uh, he turns attack on them. And that is what people, that's part of my humble opinion. Uh, people their responses default that's other it's not just uh looking for that perry mason moment which they are but it's also cheering when your side points out the hypocrisy on the other side uh and i find myself like that's where the reality tv part cheering when willis i don't know if you've seen those clips where she just Mm -hmm. comes strong Mm -hmm. it's my, my opinion it's it's you gotta watch it uh tv but you know what i'm saying it's like yeah. no i do and you know when when uh reality tv started it was an opportunity to show some people that were very interesting and along the way the industry realized that they could save a lot of money by not doing you know serial drama and just throw these cameras in front of people and just like let them act the fool and we would follow them. But a funny thing happened. They became successful. Yeah. And so as a result of that, the industry really has changed. Um, they're not making as much television as they used to make. They're not making as many dramatic shows as they used to make. Uh, because the cheap thing is to just throw somebody up there and follow them around in their house and let them act crazy. And then you pick it up. Um, and and that is disheartening, actually. Yeah. Uh, and uh, well, you know, uh, Donald Trump himself is a creature of reality TV. Uh, and uh, you know, I was actually thinking about this because Ronald Reagan in nineteen eighty go, oh, he's just a B actor from Hollywood. But compared to Donald Trump, he's a statesman of the highest order. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Uh, I guess. It's a it's an indication of how society has declined. That when you think Ronald Reagan, um, you know, based on what you just, I was trying to remember this movie where this comedian was it Robin Williams, where this comedian ran for office, and they uh, 
people voted for him because he was so funny. He didn't have really have a plan. I'm trying to remember who the, was the Wait, it wasn't Robert. Was that the Warren Beatty one? It, it was one of them. And and the reality is that if a really good comedian got up and ran for office, people would laugh their ways all the way into the booth. It wouldn't matter whether they had an agenda or anything. It was just they'd just be funny. Yeah. And I think that that part of the reason why Trump uh, had the success he had was because people had followed the Apprentice. Yeah, absolutely. If Arnold Schwarzenegger Hager, had been able to run, he would have won. Yeah, you know, uh, because people would have loved having the Terminator in office, thinking that that's real. <laughs> you know, so absolutely, yeah, yeah. thinking that's real. Uh, they expect the Perry Mason moment to occur. They expect the the Terminator to show up and obliterate the opposition. You're right. We've been trained by. Uh, the industry in which you've labored for all these years. In other words, it's your fault. I'm blaming you. Uh, all right. So uh, let's set the table here for an Oscar talk. I've been watching Oscars my whole life. I'm, uh, we're roughly the same age. And uh, it was uh, like my mom would allow us to stay up late to watch the Oscars. I was like, she allowed me to do that uh, because she shared an interest at the, she had her favorite. So we would be watching the Oscars. Uh, and I, continue that trend for all the years since uh, I don't know if I'm going to watch this year's for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, I have a feeling uh, that it was the similar thing for you, but like everything else in segregated America, you were watching from one side of the train track, so to speak. And I was watching from the other. Uh, so I'm just curious what it was like to be a young kid, uh, a young uh boy growing up in Chicago, watching from the black side of town, uh, as opposed to being a young boy growing up in Evanston and watching the Oscars from the other side of town. So let's talk about that. Back in the, I presume you were watching back in the 60s when I started watching as well. Well, uh, yes, I, I started a little bit earlier, I think, uh, few, a couple of years. But so when I was growing up, there was a movie theater down the street from us. It was the Joe Lewis Theater. And you could go there and they would drop you off and you would pay 25 cents or 50 cents, whatever it was to get in. And we could be there all day. However, the movies that played there constantly were either Elvis or Flash Gordon. And then they always had the, the cartoons. Uh, they had a whole block of, uh, of cartoons that were playing. So my reality was I didn't see any black people in movies. So I didn't watch the Oscars until, you know, Sydney was up to win or some other black person was nominated because outside of that, we were non-existent. We were invisible in that environment. And so there was no real reason for me to uh, watch the show. I wasn't into fashion, you know, so um, and none of our people were nominated or going to win. Everybody was shocked when Sydney did. Uh, for for the uh, movie that he got the role for, so you know he was one of the first actors that actually was doing uh, any work. Belafonte before him did one in '54, but uh, Sydney's uh, Raising the Sun in '59, uh, they could have gotten some more recognition for that. So my reality was that I didn't start watching the Oscars until I got into my teen years. And I was closer to getting into the business. Yeah. 
the Joe Lewis Theater. They named the theater after the the great boxer Joe Lewis. Yeah, they did. It was on 35th Street between uh, Michigan and Indiana. And it was originally, I think, if it wasn't the Pickford, it was something like that. Um, it was originally named that. It was named after Joe Lewis. And then once it closed, Theodore Ward, who was one of the founders of the Negro Federal Theater, when nice used Richard Wright, opened it as the Southside Center for the Performing Arts. And uh, he had it for about three years, and then it went under um, because he couldn't get enough audience um, during that period of time. Uh, and I'm thinking, so I'm thinking right now of Sidney Poitier, you referred to him, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, this is raw memory, uh, that he was, he first won an Oscar for Lilies of the Fields. That's correct. Uh, which came out, and I'm doing this totally from memory without notes, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and he was up against Albert Finney. Yeah, I want to say who was in Tom Jones. Uh, and <laughs> this this is classic how the world looks like from the other side of the street. Uh, Pomone. My mother had loved uh, Albert Finney. I think she had a crush on him, but she wouldn't admit it. <laughs> <laughs> so she was, she actually what, just, she wanted to cheer for him when he won. And she was so mad. I think I want to say it was Sid, uh, Sidney Poitier mm. when he won. I have a feeling, uh, to quote the Beatles, that it was a different reaction uh, in the Pomone uh, Arami house uh, oh. when, uh, <laughs> when Poitier. Go ahead. You know, you go from a period in 1950s with the uh, murder of Emmett Till, uh, there was still lynching going on in the South. Uh, the entire country was still segregated. And and when you're living in those conditions, it's hard to find things to cheer about. And so small wins can be huge in certain cycles. As a matter of fact, what Sydney represented more than anything was a strength of manhood that we had not seen in movies before him in terms of a black male. And so, yes, we were around the televisions, you know, hoping that he won. And I, I remember, you know, something that Hattie McDaniel said when she won uh, Best uh, Supporting Actress. And people were complaining about the fact that she played a maid and she got this award. And her response was, I'd rather play a maid than be a maid. And the the point of that is, if you are in movies and you are doing them just for the fun of creating. But then you're having an impact on people as well because a lot of people started strutting like Sydney. You know, Sydney did the first movie where a black man uh, slapped a white woman on film. And when he did it, they uh, they took it out, but you saw her reaction shot. And and so you were sitting there, well, what, what just happened? He, he slapped the, the, the uh, head of the Klan in... Um, um, they call me Mr. Tibbs. I think that in the know, heat of the night, in the night, yeah, in the heat of the night, and so we hadn't seen that kind of behavior in film before that, uh, and so he represented all of that, which uh, we felt was where we wanted to go in terms of imagery. Now, on the other hand, uh, Harry Belafonte was cast in Lilies of the Field first, but he said he couldn't, he didn't get it. 
how a black man from nowhere with nothing behind him ends up with five nuns, you know, that were Nazis. (laughs) Uh, So he turned it down. Yeah. And Sydney went on to win the Academy Award. Uh, So uh, one of my, that, that, Denzel Washington, they, there was a documentary, I want to say, about uh, Sydney. I think it was Denzel Washington t- reflected on that, uh, how Her- like Her- Harry Belafonte, in retrospect, is is um, regaled as someone who took strong stands and uh, refusing to do uh, movies. Uh, and Sydney Poitier, uh, in retrospect, is criticized by many for taking roles uh, that were are arguably demeaning to black people. And Denzel Washington had a great response. I'm going to destroy it by <clears throat> not accurately uh, paraphrasing it, but it was along the lines of uh, Harry could sing. So if he could afford to turn down uh, movies because he could just go to Vegas and make a fortune singing and his record sold. So he could take a, my- a high and mighty stand. Sydney couldn't sing. And I think I think that it was like day oh day, you know. What I mean? He was like Sydney can't sing, yeah. so he had to take it. Yeah. So I, I, I never felt in in watching and even looking back now on Sydney's roles that he did anything that was um, damaging in terms of image. Um, even though, he, even in in the one he did with Tony Curtis. I mean, they were running away, but he they, he still found some morality and expressed a different kind of person. Yeah. Sometimes now, when we're ta- when we're looking back, we're looking at things through contemporary eyes and not through the time that it existed in. But people were around the block every time his movies came out. Now, no, you know, it was that bad. No, I think at some point you have to have the sacrificial lamb that goes through all of the issues that are represented by the industry. They take the slings and the arrows, and then you can then turn around and be proud after they've done the battle, um, which is the hard thing, which is opening the door and letting people in. And and one thing, you know, about the account, there are over 300 movies made every year. And so you can't possibly judge all of the movies that come out, which means that you are rooting for that which is closest to you or people that you like, you know, that's just just the way that happens. So when you, um, when you see, uh, Sidney Poitier, uh, from the defiant ones, and this is a movie, ladies and gentlemen, came out in the fifties, a black, uh, man and a white man escapees from a prison work, uh, farm somewhere in the South. Uh, and they're chained together. Uh, and that's the premise uh, of the movie. And they're running away from uh, the, the, the cops or the um, prison guards, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, they're chained together. And Tony Curtis, it's kind of unbelievable anyway, who's a Jewish guy from New York, uh, is acting like he's a hardened Southern criminal, which is so preposterous uh, to begin with. Uh, and Sidney Poitier is acting uh, like he is a hardened criminal from a work camp. And I just like, it's so absurd. I've watched it recently, okay? Or at least portions of it. Um, but it's it was such a liberal movie that was uh, appealing to uh, liberal sensibilities and uh, the notion that we, we are good. 
even though uh, our country is bad. And, and there's that moment uh, that uh, white liberals love where uh, Sidney Poitier is on the train and uh, T- Tony Curtis, the racist turned good guy, is running. You remember this scene? Right, he <laughs> Sidney, like, grabs his hand to try to pull him up the train and he he ends up getting knocked off the train and I, at the time i remember oh like tears in my eyes that's sydney that what a great guy <laughs> i got a feeling it was a different response yeah uh, you had a different let him response. go let him go <laughs> <laughs> you, you know essentially when you look at movies where you project change in people and, and human behavior is really kind of interesting anyway. And so you set the, these bad people up to find each other and then you find the good at the end. There are a lot of plays that are like that, that are religious plays. And you can expect in the beginning of the play for the person to be anti-God. And at the end of the play, they're going to find God and sing a great song. You know, that's, that's how they're structured. And and just by the way, two pieces of, of trivial information. When when Sydney did that that uh, defiant one, Ivan Dixon was the stand-in, and uh, Ivan went on to do Hogan's Heroes, to direct the Spook Who Sat by the Door, to be in Car Wash and a bunch of things. But that but his first job was as a stand-in. And you mentioned um, Tom Jones. Um, when we did Mahogany, the director, Tom Jones, ooh, guys, I can't remember his name now. Uh, but he was the original director for Mahogany. And, and yeah, he did. He did was. He did the first maybe couple of months with us. And then uh, uh, Barry Gordy fired him and took over as director. Uh, Tony Richards. Oh. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, the British guy. I know. Yeah, the British guy, yeah. Uh-huh. So I had yeah. to work with him for a few weeks, and uh, and then to work with uh, Barry Gordy after that. Wow, man, I did not know that that little piece of history. Um, uh, I, I'm pretty sure his name. I I can look it up uh, later, but I'm pretty sure that's who it is. Uh, listen, I'm just before we move on and get into Oscar, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm unapologetic. And this is my generation. Uh, in my upbringing, I am un- unapologetically a huge fan of City Poitier. He's right up there with Paul Newman as my favorite actors as a kid. I never got into the Elvis movies. I'll be honest with you, Pamela. I never, you know, I just never got into them. Uh, I saw them all. You know what I mean? Like they, that's what they showed. So I, <laughs> right. uh, and I'm from a liberal family. We detest we were taught to detest john wayne so i never got into john wayne movies but i just to this day love sydney portier i love the way he carried himself yeah and yeah. the dignity that he had and, um, when he slapped <laughs> the racist uh and it was huge man it was, it was huge even for, for white liberals it was, it was like damn he had a white guy yeah. and uh, <laughs> No, it was it was major, and a lot of places in the South uh, wouldn't play the movie, and uh, and because of that, but finding being able to find your dignity in that environment during that period of time and and maintain it, um, because Sidney, through the course of his career, had no major uh, incidents that caused people to attack him in the press. I mean, he he didn't have any bad press. 
you know, overall. And so what he represented was this man, you know, in this industry that was mastering it. And the, 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 if there's any tragedy to it is that fact he didn't have more opportunities, you know, um, and, and the industry was changing. People would change the way that they look at movies. And I, I think a lot of times we don't realize the, the importance of film um, because it goes well beyond just having a good time. Um, these, what we consider to be heroes in film become heroes in our lives and in reflection of what we want to be. And so, you know, I don't take that lightly. And I, I think that as people look at movies, they should explore um what is the end result? When I when I talk to young filmmakers, I basically say there are three things that you should keep in your head. The first is, why are you doing what you're doing? The second is, who are you doing it for? And the third is, what do you want to do after they watch it? And, and, and those none of those have to be political. They can be, well, I want to do a love story because I want to motivate uh, men to treat women better. And at the end of the movie, I want everybody cheering and jumping up and down in the seats and going out. But if you don't address what you want the film to be, then the criticism that you will, you receive might not be fair because, you know, you can, you can say to me that uh, I, I bake. So you cannot tell me that I can't bake. What you can say is you don't like German chocolate cake, <laughs> but you can't tell me I can't bake. And it's the same thing with, with creating films. You know, we create these worlds and you hope that people will accept them, hang out with you in the world for a minute and then learn something from it in the process. Yeah. Uh, you were absolutely correct. Good memory. Uh, Tony Richardson was his name, the, the British director, and he did direct Tom Jones, uh, and uh, Barry Gorey fired him. Damn, <laughs> that's so deep. Uh, <laughs> that's a power play. <laughs> Barry Gorey, and he said, I'll direct it. Go ahead. <laughs> and you know what? And I actually, you know, I probably shouldn't say this, but I actually think it was a power play. I think that the whole time it was set up <laughs> for him to come in and for Barry to get his chops into the director's guild. And that's what happened. You know, he went on to to be a member of the guild and, and to put that film out. Um, but uh, I think a lot of the people that came on board, including Anthony Perkins, uh, was because Tony Richardson was directing. I don't think they would have got the same cast if they said, well, Barry, well, Barry Gordy, and he does, <laughs> he does music. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, I think it was part of the plan. Ah, uh, yeah, part of the plan. Wow. Power move by Barry Gordy. It is the behind-the-scenes uh, representation of the on-screen slap right. by Steve Poitier. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, for Barry Gordy, a, a record producer to fire this distinguished director. Uh, I'll show you. I could, Anybody could be a movie director. Uh, and uh, uh, that's the story. All right. Let's talk about the Oscars. Okay. Is a reality. So how does it work? Go ahead. Okay. Um, they're members of the Academy. And the, uh, to be a member of the Academy, you either have to be a member of SAG or a director and or actors. And during the season, they send out screeners of all the movies that are being made. Now, they, that sentence are producers. The, the Academy. Oh, the Academy. Yeah. yeah. 
and they ship them out to their members. But everybody doesn't do screeners. You know, they used to send you D- send DVDs to the <laughs> to the house, which had to be very expensive. Well, now they send links online that you can go in and you can watch the movie at your leisure. However, as I mentioned earlier, there are over 300 movies being made uh, every year. How many of those, if you're on the Academy, can you actually watch um, in the period of time that they're sending them out? So they send them to you, then they send you a ballot, and then you fill the ballot out and you send the ballot back in. And that's how the process works. But I want to talk for a minute about as a judge for films, because I, I've judged them for a lot of the major film festivals, the first thing that you want to do when you're judging a film before you vote is look at the film quality, the style, the expertise in capturing the, the images, uh, the editing, you know, that kind of stuff. That, that's one classification that people need to look at when they're making the judgment. The second is storytelling, the ability to tell a story and captivate narratives or have a strong voice or point of view. That's the other part that you're looking for uh, when you deal with it. Then creativity, the strength in storytelling in a new and innovative way, exploring uh, new subjects or subjects that people have not necessarily seen. And then finally, even though it's not as part of the rules, you always respond to what you feel about it. Whether you admit it or not, at the end of the day, what did the movie make you feel? If if you saw the movie and you got on the phone and you called all of your family members and said that they've got to go see this movie, then it's been effective. If you don't call anybody, then it's a failure, you know, because that's how it builds up. So those are the standards in terms of how people look, supposedly looking at the films. All right, but let's go back to that 300 number. You get, um, Oppenheimer, American Fiction, um, Fall of uh, the, 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 the Anatomy of a Fall. Anatomy of Fall. You, you get all of these movies in. Which one do you watch? Because you can't watch them all. So what drives you to watch any of those? Is it DiCaprio? Um, is it Jeffrey Wright? Uh, who is it? And, and what is it about that movie as a member of the Academy? I'm not talking about people. Because people are being moved by marketing, which is why, you know, you have a good opening weekend and then the second weekend nobody's there because they found out that the best part of the movie was what was in the commercial. <laughs> After that, it was just horrible. Um, but, but once it goes to the members of the Academy, and these are people that you know, then it comes down to, oh, well, you know, Sylvester Stallone is doing a movie. I'm not watching that one. We can just go beyond because he doesn't deserve anything. And then they'll look at someone else and they'll say, okay, well, they automatic, they've never gotten one before, so we're going to vote for them. And I'm not suggesting in any way that it's a conspiracy of a group sitting around making those decisions, even though it might be. But I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that it is, it is subjective. And yeah. too many times it is left up to... Um, favoritism or popularity. Uh, If you're a popular actor and you've never had an award, it's a great possibility you might get one this year. You know? So anyway, so yes. So that's how it works. 
Okay, uh, so I want to translate this into some practical examples since it's so subjective. Um, so you have all these movies to watch, and then and then after that, <clears throat> that's when you you vote as to which one should be nominated. Is that how it works? No, that's when you get the. They've been nominated. Oh, I got you. Yeah. Now, now you, they they've already been nominated. They send you the movies out, and they send you the ballots. Got you. Okay. Wow. So. They, who nominates the movies themselves? Like literally nominates, like decides that Anatomy of Fall, for instance, uh, should be considered uh, eligible for the best movie category. The Academy members that are closer to, um, like Whoopi is a member of that select group. And she's one of them. And, um, and Robert Townsend is, is part of that group in terms of two people that I know. Okay. And they get to, I think, do the first uh, wash. Yeah. And then it goes out to all of the, the Academy members after that. All right. So that's the first cutoff when you talk about so That's the first cutoff. And I, this is my theory, and I'd love to hear your response to it in terms of how this works uh, along racial lines. There's, there's two possibilities. Uh, one is just normal, what I'll call uh, likes and dislikes, or personal, uh, what you're attracted to. Uh, and in a segregated society, uh, black people will be attracted to movies that feature black people, and white people will be attracted. It's really a segregated society, uh, Pomon. That's just the way it is. We'll be attracted to movies that feature white people. So it's like, who would you, when you see a movie, like, you would like, I want to be like Sidney Poitier. I want to be like Paul Newman. It triggers a personal response. Okay. My mother, I love, love Tom Jones. All right. I mean, uh, Albert Finney, et cetera. Then, so that's like a gatekeeper. White people are not attracted to movies with black people. Uh, so they're not even going to watch it or they're not even going to consider it. Then there's just out now prejudice. So I believe and vigorously counteract, uh, c come at me if you disagree. I believe, for instance, that white people to a large degree cannot stand Spike Lee. Mm. Something about Spike Lee that really irritates him. Okay. I mean, he's not humble. What, they'll never say it, Pomone, or maybe some will. Mm. But it's like he's too arrogant. He's not humble. He thinks he's all that. I'm so sick of his movies. Like, it's not, you'll, you're not going to see in a Spike Lee movie the black character reaching out his hand on the train to the white character. <laughs> you'll see in a Spike Lee movie the black character say, I'll see you later, pal. I'm, exactly. I'm exactly. So uh, well, th that's my theory. Go ahead. So I'll push back a little because based on our participation in society here, black people, have more of a tendency to watch movies that would be considered white than white people have in, in the consideration of black movies. Because if, if I was to ask some of your viewers that were white, name me 10 black actors. If I asked a black person to name 10 white actors, they'd be able to name them. Because there's something about the entertainment, because it was so long before we were able to see anybody black in a movie, that we began to identify. Like, I, I heard Sam Jackson, I think it was Sam Jackson, talk about how 
even he like he liked westerns. And even though he liked the westerns, he and there were no black people in him, he saw himself as the cowboy. Because he could he could translate that into the kind of hero that he wanted to be. He did not watch that movie because it was white people in it. I didn't watch Elvis because it, it, was, it was, I did not watch Elvis because it was a white person. We accepted the fact that he stole from Jackie Wilson and, uh, and created this form that he had, and people got into his music. Flash Gordon was one of the hokiest uh, <laughs> TV series ever. But, you know, that little spaceship running, uh, flying around the rock um, was something that we were able to get into. So I think that what this society here has done is made us believe that imagery has something to do with our ability to understand each other. And sometimes it doesn't. An example, there was a toothpaste that came out in uh, Japan that had a, a, a person in blackface on it. It was called Blackie or get rid of Blackie for, for cleaning your teeth. And people bought it. And, and, and people bought it, right? Even though it was extremely racist. Now, what's the first thing that a black child has traditionally saw in the household? A white baby on a jar of baby food. Yeah. So the first thing that they see and associate with good is this white baby's face as they're fed by their parent. It has impact. Now, does, does that stop black parents from going out and buying those jars? No, it never has. Um, because in many ways, we have become everything that's associated with America. And sometimes I think we believe it more than other folks do, that we are truly American. And, and, and being American represents the ability to be connected, respected, and involved, and accepted. And so a lot of times the movies that we're writing is about explaining to other ethnic groups what we are, who we are, and getting them to try to understand us. There are some filmmakers that write specifically to, to Black audiences or Asian audiences to say, this is what our behavior is. And it's written for us because we want to modify our own behavior. But movies can do both of it, you know? So I, I, I was in a class the other day, and I, I asked these students, uh, uh, we were talking about what movies we would make. And I said to them, if I was the head of a studio and someone came to me with the idea of doing this, the movie of Shirley Temple, mm -hmm. I would say, okay, that's a you know, good idea. Child actress, she was an ambassador, you know, good idea. However, I want to show it through the eyes of Bojangles, who was the black dancer that danced with her in most of the movies. Now, why would I say that? Because I have a direct connection to that character. And so what a lot of black producers are faced with on a continuous basis is when they go to other ethnic groups and they ask for uh, financing, that other person will say, well, you know, how do you include me? You know, why am I, why should I be able to watch this movie? Why should I want to watch it? And the answer should be because it's a love story. You know, it, it's a rom-com. It's a, you know, 
if you could eliminate the fact that there's some black folks doing the same thing that that uh, somebody else, Jennifer Lopez or somebody else is doing in a movie, if you can get beyond um, the limitations that you placed on it because of color, then you might actually enjoy the comedy or the love story because ultimately that's what it is. Mm. Uh, so going back to Elvis, uh, which there was a play that was in Chicago. Uh, I think it was Jackie Taylor that it goes, I'm paraphrasing the name. Uh, Elvis Presley was a black man. I think that's what the play was. Uh, and uh, it was produced at the Black Ensemble Theater. So it's m- mostly black actors singing Elvis songs. And the whole point of it uh, was to underscore how much he was, I'll, I'll say it euphemistically, uh, uh, influenced uh, by um, black musicians of his time. Some would say how many just he just appropriated or stole, what have you. It's That's a debate how, what word choices you have. Um, did you think about that when you were absorbing Elvis? Not did, at did all. You, okay, go ahead. Not at all. I mean, I kind of liked Elvis. You know, I, I like the outfits he wore. He was clean. You know, Elvis. Elvis had some nice outfits. He always got the girl. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he did. And uh, yeah. he, even, even the, you know, the way he danced. And and the reason I referenced um, uh, Jackie Wilson. Jackie Wilson is because if you look at the old Jackie Wilson videos, it's the same movement, the same choreography, it's the same style. And uh, Jackie Wilson, of course, was out before uh, Elvis came along. Now, Elvis has admitted. Elvis has admitted that uh, he, he uh, emulated Jackie Wilson. Uh, and I could go on and on. And Mick, Mick Jagger emulated. Uh, this is the biggest joke. This is one of my favorite. Mick Jagger emulated James Brown. And uh, <laughs> which is. I mean, Mick Jagger can't dance. See, this is one of the weird things, Pomona, about race and culture. Look, people, like, like, I could go on and on. Mick Jagger can't dance, people. All right? I'm not saying he's not a good singer. I'm not saying they don't write good songs. I'm not saying he's a charismatic performer on stage. He's cool. Whatever you want to say, but he knows fashion. He can't dance. The notion that you promote him as a great dancer is an insult to great dancers. Let's well, you know, what? I, might, I might have to disagree slightly. Go ahead. You, you, know, you remember the Elaine dance from Seinfeld? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that yeah. was so bad that it became famous. Okay. Yeah. I think Elvis, I mean, I think Mick Jagger's dancing was so bad that it was yes. good. <laughs> you know, that, that because he, the way you watch it, you know, he, he had energy. <laughs> he just, he just did. He and just can't dance. Right. Okay. He's still doing it, but they're still, they're amazing to me. They're still, they're still dancing around, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it, just an idea popped in my head in the eighties. I hadn't thought about it, but there was um, there was a huge oh god I forget the name of it huge a worldwide concert to raise money for uh, Africa and um, I think it was stemmed came from the uh, Michael Jackson song we are the world yeah anyway so um, Mick Jagger's on stage with Tina Turner (laughs) who can dance (laughs) I'm like this guy it's like he's doing aerobics this is not dancing this is jumping up and down yeah Uh, and (laughs) 
And all my friends are, Ben, it's not the point. <laughs> uh, whatever. That's the well, argument. You know, as we have gone through, um, as an industry, um, a lot of growth. And that growth is directly connected to society. And so what you see is movies changing um, as we are challenged by the things that are happening socially. Yeah. When you look at um, Oscar Michaud, and Oscar Michaud is considered, you know, one of the prolific black filmmakers. He was making movies from starting in the 19, uh, 1919, and he made 40 films. Um, but, but people were critical of him. Right, they were critical of the quality of the movies. They were critical of the fact that he was just trying to replicate things that were being done in Hollywood. There were all kind of criticisms. And so, when I was on a panel and I was brought up, I said, "Okay, but you do know that that was fifty-four years after slavery, and that's not a long time. The first film school wasn't opened until nineteen twenty-one, and that was out in California." So where were people supposed to learn movies? They would learn them by watching them and you watch the ones that are out and then you try to replicate what that is. And so Michelle, even though you can be critical, you have to again, look at it through the eyes of back then rather than now. The first black uh, soap opera was done in 1970 here in Chicago. It's called Bird of the Ant Feather written by Richard Durham. And it was produced at PBS. It was the top-rated show in the 1970s. But when they were putting it together, they were, and they were talking about a black director, there were none. There were absolutely none in Chicago. There was a guy, some guys that were doing theater, but nobody had done film or television. So O'Curl Harold Johnson, who founded the ETA Theater, went to Boston for a six-week certificate to come back to be able to direct that show. Wow. When you look at the at the uh, tape of the shows, you can see the fact that these are first-time directors. You can see the fact that these actors had never gone to acting school or, or you know, done any major work. But so you have to accept it for the time. If you're comparing it against a movie that's being made now with, with exceptional cameras and dollars and, you know, it's just unfair. It's unfair to do it. You have to look back at why the piece was, was produced and what was to what extent did it move the needle in society? Because that's why a lot of them were done. Um, there, in, in this documentary that I'm, I'm hosting uh, in a couple of weeks, um, they were talking about the impact of black films with movies. Shaft, the Isaac Hayes soundtrack, was the first movie that did not use classical music to underscore the film. Superfly, Sweetback, and some of those films were the first ones to release an album before the movie came out. And they made and the albums made so much money and gave so much publicity to the films that the industry changed and began to do the same thing. Those movies also created the first antiheroes. After that, the industry again changed. And so every incident that, that we go through in time, I think, impacts the stories that we want to tell. There's a lot of, you know, things about uh, LBGTQI um, issues now 
that are being generated in the industry. There's a lot of uh, female-related materials being generated in the industry. And all of that has to do with the pushback that was being done out in the streets by people saying, you know, these are the kind of movies that we want to see. Um, Avon DuVernay uh, has had an enormous impact because she has helped. And I do think that disappointing she didn't get an Academy Award nomination for Origins. But, uh, but she's helped to get a lot of women and a lot of people into the industry. And she started making movies when she was 35. And I had to tell the story because it's funny as hell. She said, before she became a movie director, she was a publicist. And she was a publicist on movies. And her direct quote was, these people are stupid. <laughs> and if these stupid people are getting money <laughs> to do movies, I can do that. <laughs> and, and she did. And now she's one of the biggest uh, directors in Hollywood. You know, so it's not brain, it's not brain surgery. Uh, yeah. But you do have to be around good people. All right. So you mentioned Shaft and you mentioned Isaac Hayes. So let me ask you this. <laughs> Why is that Shaft, uh, Isaac Hayes, overwhelming? Uh, well, I have no idea what the vote was, but won the Oscar for best soundtrack. Uh, but the movie Shaft was not nominated for best picture. Uh, I would argue that the influence of Shaft as a movie, which includes, of course, the soundtrack, uh, had as many re reverberations as the soundtrack did itself. It was emulated by dozens and dozens of movies throughout the 70s uh, that inc included white movies and black movies, okay? So um, I would argue, and then people go, Ben, have you seen Shaft lately? It doesn't stand the test of time. Well, yes, they're absolutely correct. It does. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. I liked it so much. But come on, people. Think Rocky. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly great filmmaking there, okay? <laughs> if you watched that one lately, right. and it won right. an Oscar. Right. He won an Oscar for Sylvester Stallone, won an Oscar for Best Picture of the Year. <laughs> and, right. so, and, and, and Shaft didn't even get nominated. Now, come on, help me promote on this one. I can't help so, on that one. What I can say is that uh, Shaft sold more leather coats, I think, <laughs> in, in history. Uh, because everybody went out and bought a leather coat. You know, it's just, uh, it's just what it was. No, but, but, you know, again, that was, um, that was one of Gordon Parks' first movies. Uh, he'd done Learning Tree before that, but he had done, he had had very little experience. Uh, Richard Roundtree was a model uh, who they plucked from uh, Ebony Fashion Fair and gave him the job, so he had never acted before. Uh, Sheila Frazier, who was the, the love interest, she had a little theater background. So what do you expect when you're just sort of, at this point, letting people in the door that have never been in? Yeah, I mean, look back at the movies and say, man, they, they were crossing, they were cutting the, the lines, and they were looking in the wrong direction. They didn't do cutaways. They didn't show the fruit that he was eating. Right, all of that. Because they hadn't gone to school or they hadn't seen enough movies. Uh, two quotes. Uh, someone asked uh, um, 
dang, what is his name? Uh, that did uh, Jackie Brown and uh, Tarantino. Tar- yeah, they asked Tarantino, did he go to film school? And his response was, no, I watch movies. Yeah. Interesting point. And then Robert Townsend uh, said that, uh, you know, one weekend I was talking to him, he said, I'm watching every movie that ever won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. And the reason is because I want to see what is the similarity, what's the continuity, what is it about those movies that make them great. And it's that level of study, it's that level of filmmakers getting in there and saying, okay, I want to, I don't want to just make money. I want to be great. And I want my movie to be remembered in, in a hundred years. Uh, and, but most people, uh, either just want to work or they have no real concern about, you know, quality as long as they get a check, you know? Uh, uh, All right. So since you made reference, uh, to Jackie Brown, which we could do a whole show on Jackie Brown, uh, and, and I've, it's one of, it's my, one of my favorite novels. And I don't know if you noticed written by Elmore Leonard, uh, the, the, the protagonist is uh, a woman who beats the man. So it's a classic black exploitation movie, but she's a white woman. So it's not even black exploitation. It's just woman's boy. I don't even know what to call it, but she's, and it was uh, Tarantino when he bought the rights from Elmore Leonard, who switched the uh, protagonist to a black woman played by Pamela Greer. And since we're talking Oscars, I'll marry these two subjects. In my humble opinion, (laughs) I realize there's real outrages and then there's like diversionary outrage. So this is a diversionary outrage. Uh, But one of the great outrages of all time is that Pamela Greer did not even get nominated. That performance was unbelievable. Everything you want out of a movie star, Pomone, just the way she carried herself, the, like you fell in love, or me, a whole generation of guys my age fell in love with Pam Greer all over again, and she didn't get nominated. Yeah, no, most certainly. You know the the she she really does deserve even if it's a special Academy Award, because the, the term you use, black exploitation, that era of what is defined as black exploitation saved Hollywood. Uh, Hollywood was was not making money. People were, were, there was the same old kind of films. And it, it invigorated that industry in a way that no one expected and had great success, which is then what led to the black exploitation movement which was the studios rushing to throw anything together that they could to uh, get get in on that money. And the example that I, I worked on a movie called Monkey Hustle uh, some years years ago. And when they called me about doing the film, they said, well, we, we've got uh, James Earl Jones and Lou Gossett, and we're going to do Monkey Hustle. When they got to Chicago, they had uh, Rudy Ray Moore and uh, Yapit Koto as the, the two actors. But when I talk about exploitation, there was a there's a scene at the end of the movie where they have this big uh, block party, and as we were pulling the people together for the film, they said, um, "Okay, we're gonna have this block party, and you know we're gonna feed everybody, and you have to come out because we need a big crowd." So when they get out on location, they had lettuce, 
They had a plate of lettuce and told the folks to act like you have some food in front of you. When they were uh, renting people's uh, locations, uh, they were uh, not paying them what they should have. When they were hiring extras, they weren't paying them what they should have. The actors were underpaid. Uh, Very few black directors or writers were hired on those films. Well, it has an impact on the outcome and what they, and and what they're going to do. I think Jackie Brown uh, did not get a nomination because of Tarantino. And I think that the, that the industry has a funny relationship with him. And some of his movies have really been very good. Um, But I think the combination of language and subject has made a lot of people stay away from awarding it. Because sometimes you don't want to reward the hero because of what the hero does or what, what they accomplish or the anti-hero, uh, depending on, you know, what role they're playing. So, yeah. Uh, did you, did, do you, did you enjoy Jackie Brown? I did. You know, I, I was, I was at the, uh, history museum, Chicago history museum yesterday for a meeting. And this guy just blurted out at, at some point that a friend of his in some other state, um, was having a meeting and called him up and said, guess who's in the office? He said, who, Pam Greer. Who just, guess who just was in my office? He said, who? He said, Pam Greer. And she was here for like two, three hours waiting. You know, we were, he said, and you calling me now that she's gone? <laughs> said, I have loved her since, since the movie yeah. came out, you know? No. <laughs> Oh, Lord, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm telling you, it's our generation. There are so many people I know that love Pam Greer. Uh, shout out Sergio Mims. May we rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, dear friend. And he loved, we shared a love for Pam Greer. And I remember she came to town to sign copies of her books. Uh, and he went, he got to meet her. And I couldn't go because it was my uh, youngest daughter's high school graduation. And he, he was funny because he was like, are you crazy? <laughs> You're going to skip this for your high school grad? And it happened every year. Pam Green has come to Chicago. Like, what? Yeah, man. That's funny. Uh, yeah. That's funny. So, uh, all right, we're going to close this down because I could talk for another two hours uh, with you about this. This is just a delightful conversation for me. Uh, but we'll close with this. Just connect this in some way to the Oscars, which are uh, going to be held in two weeks. Uh, is there Are there any movies this year that you're just – you said it's all subjective. Granted, I totally hum- agree with you. Are there any movies that you are just rooting for that you're like personally rooting for this year? American fiction. American fiction has my vote in, in a number of categories. And I, for number one, I think that the subject is so necessary and, and it's across the board. I mean, it's even People that are writing now are challenged with who are they writing for? And I talked about that earlier. But also, how much garbage do you put out? Mm-hmm. You know, because some people, like you have you have Christian rappers that do gangster rap because that's what the studio told them they had to do to get a deal. And 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 then they'll say to you, Well, you know, as soon as I get this deal and I make my first million, then I'm gonna go back and do my religious, <laughs> my religious songs. It kind of doesn't work like that, you know, once you're in that, that stream. And so I, I love what American fiction represented and the message that it has about what we see and also about what we write and what we'll do for money, you know, because some people just do anything. Yeah, so. 
Uh, you you asked me something when we were talking earlier, and, uh, and it was off mic. Uh, uh, you asked me what, who didn't get an Academy Award that I thought should. Yes. I couldn't sleep last night because that question bugged me the whole night. Yeah. And I would have given Best Actor and Best Actress to Angela Bassett and oh, yeah. Lawrence Fishburne for Tina Turner. Yeah. They, they should have at least been nominated. Uh, Those were incredible performances. We, we could do a whole show on that and why. <laughs> I mean, I truly don't understand. Uh, well, I mean, number one, I would put it at the top of my list, uh, Pam Greer for Jackie uh, Brown. I would put on my list, not getting it, Denzel Washington for Fences. Unbelievable. I told the greatest American actor doing the greatest American playwright. Like, close your eyes and just listen to him. It's poetry. I, you need, they gave it to that guy. I can't remember his name for that, like, melodrama. Uh, that, it's just like, what? Uh, I'm, I can't even get the words out. Uh, but, yeah, no, I, I hear what you Oh, God, I can hear. I'm rooting for um, uh, the um, uh, American uh, fiction movie as well for a different reason. And um, the writer, I'm just going to say this again. Percival Everett has wrote the book that that movie is based on, which came out over 20 years ago, uh, and it's called Erasure. Uh, and it is even more satirical and darker, if you can imagine that, than the movie. And it's kind of experimental, the way he does it. He's absolutely genius. I'm in awe of this man. Uh, every novel he does is different than the one before. He writes in so many genres. It blows my mind every time it comes out with a with a novel. I've just been like a fan. You know how you're like people you're a fan of? Like I can't, I'm not never gonna be like you, but I'm in awe of you. And this like mainstream has recognized him and it just blows my mind away. And he doesn't care. He doesn't do publicity. You know what I'm saying? I, he doesn't care. He does he's doing his thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, I mentioned that my wife is part of the Academy. So we used to go to the Directors Guild in LA on the weekends and we'd be invited to these screenings. Yeah. And all of the screenings were of movies that I typically wouldn't have gone to the movie house to see. Um, my point is that for your listeners, do yourself a favor and select five movies that you yeah. normally wouldn't go see and see them. This, this, wow. any, this randomly, just fire. I would never go see this movie. Then you'll either agree or you won't. But it will give you an opportunity to see the world in different in a different way. And I'm glad that a lot of the foreign films are not coming in because some of them is like really great work, and we typically would not be able to be exposed to them. Uh, so I do like the fact that those included. I have some issues with how that process works, but that's something I'll get different. All right, we'll uh, come to back to that. I'm sure the next conversation. Uh, we this conversation go on another four hours. Uh, you, you have places to go and people to see, uh, and so I'm just going to thank you for coming on. Uh, and uh, probably we could do this again uh, next month in the aftermath of the Oscars or whatever. Maybe get you talking politics. How about that? Hey, that would be wonderful. Uh, and, uh, so thank you very much, Pomone, for coming on my humble little podcast. Oh, uh, Thanks for having it. me again. I've, I always enjoy coming on your show. You're insightful. You're always prepared and engaging. And so 
uh, call me anytime. Very good. I will. So uh, thank you very much, Pomone. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.